All right, so in the book of Galatians, as we've been talking about it, we've been talking a lot about legalism. And our title for this series is War on Legalism, or War Declared on Legalism. Uh, some say, well, legalism is just a different way of looking at things. And can't we all just get along, was the plea when I was a kid. I don't want to date myself, but uh, who was I, Rodney, Rodney King? You know, I remember the day watching the news when I was a kid and him saying, can't we all just get along? And sometimes it's like that in the church when it comes to someone who, who's legalistic and they're, they're walking through our church maybe and they they're, you know, identify themselves even, self-identified as I'm pretty legalistic when it comes to certain things. I remember going to a church when I was a kid that uh, was very legalistic. And, and I would ask my mom, I said, hey, what's... Uh, what's the deal with all these rules that they have? You know, the women can't wear this type of clothing and the guys had to do this and you had to do this this way. And it was all this big thing. And I didn't know any of this. So I was making mistakes all over the place and people were looking at me funny because I didn't know their rules. And so I asked, and I asked that question and I remember it was just like, oh, that's just the way they do things. If Paul was there today, he would say something else. I probably, if I said it, would get kicked out of church. <laughs> he, he, was, he is declaring war on legalism right now. Uh, he's going to call it many bad things, and we'll get into those here in a minute. But suffice it to say, he hated legalism. He hated this perversion of the gospel. So the truth is that trying to follow a list of rules to please God is direct rebellion against the work that Jesus did on the cross. It's spitting in the face of what Jesus did on the cross. It is saying, that was cool, but I have to add something to it. It wasn't good enough for me. That's what it is. Legalism is a different gospel. If gospel means good news, then it's not really a gospel at all because it's bad news. Uh, And you... You have to still do things that no one has been able to do in order to please God and change yourself into a good person. That's legalism summed up. You have to still do things that no one has ever been able to do in order to please God and change yourself into a good person. Does that sound like good news to you? Can you do something that no one else has ever done before to please God and make yourself into a good person? No. The demands of legalism are terrible news if you guys want to follow them. So, with that being said, we're going to look real fast. Keep your finger here in Galatians, but a couple pages to the right in Colossians. We looked at this verse once before, but we're going to look at it again in Colossians 2.20 through 23. It says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations such as do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. See, the great enemy of us Christians 
is our flesh. Obeying laws through our efforts only encourages our flesh. And as we learned last week, the solution to our flesh is not rehabilitation. The solution to our flesh is not trying really hard. The solution to our flesh is death. Death. So that we can walk in the Spirit. And new life then flows from inside us. New desires and new power, new resources, new motivations. All of it from the Spirit inside us. That is the new life. So we choose death every day. And that, that verse there in Colossians says, these, these commandments and doctrines of men, these regulations, like don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, don't, does that sound familiar? Don't touch that. That's not okay. Don't handle that. Don't taste that. The food thing isn't that big a deal anymore. But These all are rules and regulations that are put on us. And it says here they have an appearance of wisdom. So, and that's the part that really gets everyone. That's the part. Because you go to a church and they, oh, we don't, we don't dress that way. And you're like, oh, these people must be holy. These people must know how to, how to get it done. Because I do dress that way. And so that must make them better than me. They must have it figured out because they are telling me they know God. And this, this is the way to know God. But Paul is, gonna, is going to war with that idea and saying, no, that is not knowing God. And even, that verse says, those things have an appearance of wisdom in, in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of God, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So even if you kept all the rules, if it was in your own effort, it does not help you with your great enemy which is your flesh. Because you could say, well, man, all day today, I kept all the rules. I wore the right clothes and I did this. But your flesh then, you start to think, I'm pretty awesome. I tried really hard and I got it done. And who gets the glory from that day? You do. Not me, or not Jesus, not God. You do. And that's why God is looking for an obedience that's not based on your efforts. He's looking for an obedience that arises out of a heart change, that arises like fruit. So, back in Galatians, put your fin- where your finger is. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. In our speed through Galatians, I'm sure you're all barely keeping up with where we're at you probably all are memorizing Galatians, right? As we're going. Because you can. Exactly right. Verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So Paul here begins his war, he didn't hardly even say hello. He didn't hardly even say, how you guys doing? I missed you. He doesn't go into any of that. He just says, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. You guys get ready, because here we go. It's going down right now. Boom. Why are you guys so dumb? 
That's how he starts his letter. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. It's like Paul can hardly believe. He, he's, he planted this church. They were learning great. They were doing great. And then, and then he's like, all right, you guys good. Probably set up a pastor. Probably set up elders. They were tithing. They were, they were serving the Lord. They probably had a worship team. They are doing all great. And he's like, okay, I love you guys. i got to go because there's some other people in Jerusalem I need to take care of. So he goes to Jerusalem. Then word reaches his ears that some people followed him. They said, oh, is Paul gone? All right, let's go in. And they went in with this doctrine. They were Judaizers. And they went in saying, oh, Paul, he's okay. He's all right. And the people were like, well, but, but Paul said, we're good. All we got to do is love Jesus and we're, we'll be all right. And they said, oh, yes, you've got to love Jesus and get circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Then you can go to heaven. Because obviously you can't go to heaven if you're not circumcised. Because that's a command from God. It's part of our law, don't you know? Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't, isn't that make sense in your brain? And the, but Paul said um, that we were, wait, um, Paul, wait, are you friends with Paul? Yeah, we know Paul. Paul's great. Paul's great. We're friends with him. But he's not one of the, the big-time apostles. He wasn't one of the 12, well, 11. He wasn't one of them. He's, he's this other apostle. And this is exactly how it happened. This is how they came in. And they put these other rules, this other bondage. And Paul, when he hears about it, he's grieved. And he said to them, he says, I marvel that you are turning away. He doesn't say, I marvel that there's Judaizers and creepy people that are going to come into your church. He knew that. He probably had an idea that they would come in. And he probably warned them, too. But maybe they weren't sitting on nice padded pews on the back, too. So they didn't hear everything that Paul said. Because we know he liked to preach sometimes, like, all night long. So they probably were a little bit, maybe not paying attention to that part. So he said, he doesn't, he doesn't come against the Judaizers right here and say, how dare they deceive you? No, he, he talks to them. And he says, my children, I marvel about you. Who are we listening to? Why do we listen to them? In the end, we are the ones responsible for the life that we live. There may be those who encourage you to follow Jesus, and then there'll be those who try to sway you away from him. But in the end, it's up to you who you follow. And that's why Paul is addressing them. Because they allowed these Judaizers to convince them. They should have stood, stood firm on what? On Jesus. And on his gospel of grace. But no, they let themselves. Paul tell, tells us that even though someone was telling them to change, it was ultimately their decision to get off track. There was something... There is something that is so tempting about legalism to them and to us. It appeals to our flesh. Like, like we could say, I could do it. I could, be, I could be the first person ever to keep all these rules. They don't look that hard. Maybe. And what does he say the problem is? What are they turning away from? He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. See, it's not what. It's not what they're turning away from. It's who or whom. Who. And that's the problem. If I was going to title our message today, it's the problem. What is the problem? 
The problem is they changed from who they were following to what they were following. Instead of a person to a set of rules, instead of Jesus himself being everything that they need, to they need to do something. They need to add something to what Jesus did. Turn, if you will, to Jeremiah, Old Testament book. If you're turning left and you hit Ezekiel, just go a little further to Jeremiah. The very beginning of the book is chapter 2. I'll give you a second to get there. People might think this is a new idea, but it's not. This has always been God's heart. Personal relationship. What did he do with Adam and Eve in the garden? He walked with them in the cool of the day. He loved it. He loved just spending time with them. In fact, he was on his way to a meeting with them, an appointment or whatever, when he wanted to walk with them in the cool of the night. And he's like, Adam, where are you at? We always meet right here by the Starbucks. What are you, where are you at? And Adam's like, I'm naked. Anyway, this is a big long story. We'll get there in a little while. Maybe a couple of weeks. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12, Listen to what Jesus says here. <clears throat> be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern what they would do is they would, they would take solid rock and they would carve it out and make a big hole in the rock and they would keep water in there so that during the, the dry time of the year they would have like a, basically a man-made well or like a pool that they could go to and get water. But uh, if they drilled too far into the rock, or I don't know if they drilled, they used probably an axe or some sort of, I don't know, tool uh, to get into the rock. If they went too far or they, they, they made it too big, the cistern would break. And so all the water that they put in would just leak out the bottom. And it wouldn't hold any water. So it would be useless, completely useless for what they needed it for. And what they were going to use it for would be their life. They would need water for the dry season or else they would die. They would become dry and die. So here in this verse, he says they've committed... I mean, he's talking to the heavens. He says, Oh heavens, be astonished, be horribly afraid, be very desolate. For my people have committed two evils. First, they, fors- they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And secondly, they hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So their great evil was where they were going for for their life. They were trying to do it themselves. They were, they were making cisterns of their own efforts. And that's exactly what we're talking about in Galatians. Our efforts are these cisterns. And all of our cisterns break. All of them. But there's a different way. God knew that we can't make cisterns that can hold water. And he never asked them to. That's the thing. He never asked them to make cisterns. He said what? He said, they have forsaken me. And who am I? I'm the fountain of living waters. I'm the one that just flows out to wherever you're at. Refreshment and life. 
You know, like Moses, he was, he was marching along, and, and then God says, you know, the place where you're on is holy ground. I don't think that it was actually like a holy piece of dirt or like a rock that was holy. I think it was holy because God was there in Moses, and he made it holy for Moses. And I think the same thing with us. He is wanting to bless you. He wants to pour out waters. Where? Where? Some people think, where do I have to go to get blessed by God? What do I have to do? And he's like, just be you. And I will find you. I will search you out and pour my blessing upon you. Just don't forsake me. Don't hide from me. Don't turn away from me. Just be here with me. And you'll be holy and you'll have this fountain of living waters, this unceasing. It just describes something that doesn't cease. The grace of Christ is just fully available to us. It never ends. So he says back in Galatians. Go ahead and turn back into Galatians. He says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him. Just like they did in Jeremiah, you're turning away, you're forsaking him. The heavens are appalled. Paul's appalled. His name is even Paul. Everyone says, yeah, thanks. That was, that was funny. I thought that was funny. I just came up with that. <laughs> so Paul is so upset here that they're turning away from him who called them in the grace of Christ. Jesus is the source of grace. It's actually synonymous with him. Grace is the New Testament word that we use for the New Covenant. It's synonymous with living by the Spirit, Christ-like living, Christian life, walking by the Spirit. All these different terms you've heard for being a Christian is summed up in grace. That's how God called us to, was grace. So I want to teach you guys real quick a little bit about grace. Because it's the New Testament word for the new covenant. So when you guys hear the word grace, I want you to think of the new covenant. So what was the old covenant? You, man, you better know this because we've been talking about this for like 45 weeks in a row. The old covenant was the law, the Ten Commandments. This legalistic way of trying to perform to please God. And we've looked a lot, about, a lot at that. In the last couple of weeks even, we've looked at that. So the new covenant, and uh, back in Jeremiah, I'm so sorry, I forgot to tell you guys to keep your finger there, but turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. And some people think the new, co- the new covenant was only something that was started by Jesus. Well, Jesus completed it. He, he initiated it. He did all the work to establish it, but it was prophesied long before Jesus came. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, it gives a prophecy about the new covenant. In your Bible, it even has the the little section there. It's even called the new covenant. How about that? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity and their sins. I will remember no more. So I want you guys real quick, you could study that for weeks. We could spend studying just, just those verses. But I want you to notice three things about the new covenant. Just because we're learning about grace, because Paul says, he called you in grace. I marvel that you're turning away from this. So I want you guys to understand what it is, this grace that he's called them to. Because I'm sure when Paul was teaching them about grace, he had them turn in their scrolls to Jeremiah. And they're rolling out their scroll, and they all had their scrolls, and probably on their iPad scrolls too. And they're... they're looking at Jeremiah, and, and they all read this. And he taught them about the new covenant from this passage, because this is it. And first of all, notice that it, it speaks of the forgiveness of sins. Their sins, and it, I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. The forgiveness of sins, that's the first part of the new covenant. What part of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt have your sins forgiven? Any part? No. That was not part of the deal. And see, that's what they, he taught them, is that the Ten Commandments were never designed for you to be right before God by using them. That's this other gospel. That's this other legalistic way of looking at things. That's not the design. They had a great, they're a great purpose. They're wonderful. They show us the heart of God. They show us what per- perfect looks like. They show us great things. And they can reveal our sin in really clear terms. But they can't make us clean. They cannot forgive us. Those Ten Commandments are worthless when it comes to making someone clean. It's like trying to take a measuring stick and wash yourself with it to get clean. It doesn't work. We're trying to take a measuring stick and eat it to grow two inches. It doesn't work. That's not what it's designed for. And so we can't use it for that. But the new covenant does forgive sins. So it forgives sins. Number two, when it says they shall all know me, the new covenant provides a personal relationship with God. Something the old covenant also neglected. It did not have the power to provide a personal relationship with God. The new covenant, grace, does. And you know what the greatest part is? It's even when you mess up. It's even, and you know what that, the greatest word in a, the life of a Christian should be? Repent. We get to repent. We don't have to go find a bull somewhere and kill it and get all bloody and sacrifice it and march to Jerusalem. And all this, I mean, we get to just repent. What that means is we get to just turn to the Lord. Ask Him for forgiveness. And He is faithful and just to forgive us every time. Because our sin is no longer a boundary between our relationship and his, with him. So repent. We, we have a personal relationship with this new covenant that is far beyond what they could even imagine under the old covenant. Number three, an internal working of God, enabling us and changing us from the inside out. See, the law was written on an external stone and was, that was not alive. But this, it says, he writes it in their minds and in their hearts. This new covenant gives life. The old covenant was just a list of rules. That is all it was. The new covenant is a source of life. So what does this have to do with us? 
Hebrews 8, verse 8 through 13. I'm going to read that to you real quick. Hebrews chapter 8. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, for I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord, and I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me and from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant he made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. Did you guys notice anything about those verses? And the verses we just read in Jeremiah, it's the same thing, right? He's quoting Jeremiah. And who is he writing to? What book were we just in? The Hebrews. And he knew, and he's talking about there, that he was writing to the very group of people that would be the most vulnerable to going back to that way of relating to God, this legalistic way. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to them, and he's, he's pointing them to the new covenant. And he says the other one is obsolete, is growing old, and ready to vanish away. In Hebrews chapter 10, it's, it calls the new covenant a new and living way. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 through 20. He says, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us For after he said before, this is the covenant I will make with them in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. And he adds, and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is a remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, boldness having, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter his holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, So this same passage is quoted twice in Hebrews now. The same New Covenant establishment from Jeremiah is quoted twice. And here it's called a new and living way, a Jesus way. This is the way we are called into right now. It's no longer we're called to strive to keep the law. That's not what we're called to. It's new life that we're called to. A relationship in Jesus. And this is what's so freeing about what we're studying right now. Is God is not asking you to keep any rules. He's not putting that on you. He says there's one thing I want you to worry about. Love Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Yeah, but I'm totally addicted to... Oh, well then, that changes everything, right? You're totally addicted to something, so you need something else. You need ten steps of this, that. Jesus didn't die for that. Of course that's not true. Jesus' death does work for every sin. Everything. And so, it's a Jesus way. He calls us to live for Jesus. And this is what they were turning away from God to. Their own works. Rejecting God's righteousness. And that's described in Romans 10.3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted to the righteousness of God. 
See, the righteousness of God is something to be submitted to, something to just fall down and accept. It's not something to strive to. Just, just accept it, submit to it. God loves me? I'm rebelling against that. Why don't you just submit to it? God loves you. He did everything for you. God had a specific plan for righteousness, and it was through faith. Back in Galatians. We're going to go to the next verse now. He's he's marveled that they're going to a different gospel, verse 7, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you, who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. See, the gospel of Christ is very clear. Jesus did everything. We do nothing but believe and trust his work that he did. A perverted way of looking at that is that Jesus died for us, but we need to do works to be accepted by him and make him happy with us. And he says here, these people are troubling you. See, there's nothing but trouble in legalism. There's nothing but trouble. And if you grew up in a church that was legalistic, or if you had a family that was legalistic, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is nothing but trouble. Right? It is absolutely nothing but trouble. So, why would someone want to pervert and change the gospel of Jesus? What's their motivation? I'll give you three things. First, the gospel, the true gospel that Jesus did everything offends our pride. It tells us that we need a savior and that we cannot save ourselves. It gives us it gives no credit to us at all for our salvation. It is all the work of Jesus for us. And that's offensive to our pride. What do you mean I can't do anything? And you guys have talked to people. What are you talking about? I'm not a good person. What are you talking about? You're not as good as God. Yeah. Sorry. So it offends our pride. Second, the gospel offends our wisdom. It saves us by something many consider foolish. God becoming a man, dying a humiliating and disgraceful death on our behalf. We think we can't even understand the way that Jesus had to redeem us, the way that he had to suffer, the, the humility that he had to endure. We can't even think about it. We watch like the Passion of the Christ and we're just offended almost at how humiliated he was for us, especially when he says, I'm doing this in your place because it's exactly what you deserved. So it's offensive. Third, the gospel offends our knowledge. It tells us to believe something which goes against scientific knowledge and personal experience. For example, the main thing being that a dead man, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead in a glorious new body and would never die again. That offends our brain because we're taught that science says that's impossible. It goes against the rule of nature, right? God even says one man is appointed to die and then and that death is what happens, it's just, it offends those things. But Paul says, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you, than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. This is Paul saying, some, his, this is him at his height of anger probably. And we, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, than what you have received, let him be accursed. He says the same thing twice. It is not possible to be any harsher in word or idea than Paul is being right here. This is an all-out attack, verbal warfare from Paul. 
And he's not mincing words or beating around the bush. He says, they should be cursed. That word is anathema, which means damned to the lowest hell. Paul's awesome. (laughs) He says, those guys can go to hell, is literally what he's saying. If anyone steps on my Jesus that way, that's what he says. And he says it twice. He cannot be any more clear. And that's why I started this message by saying, some people think, ah, can't we all just get along? It's just two different ways of looking at it. It's not. It's a false gospel. And I will fight theologically with anyone who says otherwise. So the question is, where's Paul's love? Right? (laughs) Isn't he supposed to be like this loving pastor? David Guzak answers that question like this. Think of a sinking ship. If the waters fill with people about to drown, two ships come to rescue people in danger. But one of the ship rescue ships carries a load of dynamite. And for some reason, you know that the ship will explode before it reaches port, and everyone on it will be killed. The most loving thing you could do is to help everyone get into the right rescue ship. Getting on the wrong rescue ship would seal your doom. Paul looks at the false gospel, this perverted gospel, and says, this is a rescue ship about to sink. It can't save anyone. I want to do everything right before God to warn people away from the wrong rescue ship. So verse 10, he says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Those who taught this other gospel were out to satisfy men. The heart of legalism is to please men. Paul doesn't care about pleasing men. He's a slave of Christ. And that's the safest place to be. This is the way Jesus wants it to be. He was not trying to convince anyone of anything. He was presenting the truth in power. You can't convince someone into heaven or to get saved. It's an alignment of your will with God's will, humbly crying out to the Lord in faith on his work on the cross. Paul didn't care what they thought. He was presenting the truth. The same with us. You you guys are here on a Wednesday night and, and you're getting truth. And maybe as you've grown up, you've thought, man, I've got to keep the rules. And you're preaching a lot against legalism. And, and we'll, we're going to continue talking about because this whole book is about this. I want you to know that Jesus loves you guys so much. And he has freed us from every law so that we can love him. And And now we have a new law that we keep, which is to love him and do whatever his spirit leads us to do. I was having a conversation with someone today. We were talking about, what if the spirit leads me to stop doing this? And I said, then you stop doing that. And then tomorrow he leads me to go to Africa. Then you go to Africa. Because God doesn't care where you're at. He cares about who you're with, that you're with him. Wherever you're at, you're with him. And you guys are in a great place tonight where you can, we can turn to the Lord. So we're going to sing another song now. 
we're going we're gonna to spend some time praying for Eddie. And, uh, and let's go ahead and, and pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for Paul going to war for us and for your gospel and, and being so clear about what he thinks about what you did on the cross. That it's absolutely everything that we need. He wasn't trying to build his own kingdom here on the earth. And he definitely wasn't trying to build a human argument or try to convince people. He was presenting the truth of your grace and he was fighting for that truth. And God, I just pray that our hearts would be that passionate about your grace that we would, we would be filled with understanding and clarity when it comes to when we're ourselves falling into legalism, when we are putting ourselves back under a, a yoke of bondage, when we're looking at performance or we're looking at other people saying, they should do this and this person over here should do that and I should do this even. God, free us from looking around and lift, God, gently our eyes to you on the cross. There's nothing else that we need. Absolutely nothing. Jesus, we fix our eyes on the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen.